Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of the October edition of the Code Commerce Series in Las Vegas. If you like this interview, please leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. You know, you may not realize this, but I actually covered retail, regular retail, for seven years for the Washington Post. I which did not yes, know I did. That. I used to sit in that sh- is a good fun fact. I yes, it is. I sat tonight. in shopping malls at Christmas and counted bags and things like that. That's what was, I did. Yeah, that's how was, I fell in love with the space. Really, sitting I in the fell mall out of love with the space watching that way. <laughs> that yeah. could happen too. Um, so anyway, talk a little bit about your background, and we'll get into your successes because this year has been a big year for you um, in in your sales and and your timing and everything you've done. So talk a little bit about how your background has formed it, because a lot of people that have invested in commerce really didn't have the background of what came before it. Yeah, thanks. So I've been an investor for twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out in the equity research department at Montgomery Securities um, in the nineties, and um, I think I had the good fortune of being at the firm at a time where there was a lot going on mm-hmm. in technology and in retail. Right. Um, it was an it was an investment bank that was really um, taking on growth clients, and um, in retail in particular, what was fueling it at the time was real estate. Right. It was the rise of the mall. So Walmart, all the other. All, all, the- all, you know, big box retail. Right. And then all of what we call kind of like the specialty inline sure. retail. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a different shopping experience. It was drawing different people out to the stores. One of those groups were teens. Um, you know, suddenly teens were getting dropped off at malls right. on a Saturday afternoon with their parents mm-hmm. with $20 in their back pocket. And it turns out that's a lot of discretionary spending. Right. And so it kind of gave rise to the teen retailers. I covered them. There were tons of those. There were tons of those. There, there was one I recall in when I was in wa- at the Washington Post, and I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was a hot, 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 hot company. And then it was not, 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 not. Oh, not. yes. This happens. And, and yes. And I talked to the CEO, and he said, and I said, what went wrong? It was one of the best quotes I've ever gotten. He said, pedal pushers. We were wrong on pedal pushers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was Delia's. Yeah, apparently culottes was the thing. But um, anyway. <laughs> fashion trends can disrupt yeah. your business when you're in a public market and you're getting judged on a quarterly basis. Um, in any event, I, I being the, kind of the starting early in my career, the youngest person on the team, lacking experience, was looking for ways to differentiate myself and to create some sort of you know contribution to the team's thinking. And I realized, like, I'm kind of younger than everyone else. I'm closer to the customer in age. I started spending time in the malls. So you didn't like counting bags. I didn't really like counting bags either, but it was kind of better than sitting in the office. I got to like go to the mall, see what was going on. I had this beat that I ran. I went every Friday to the same four malls. And it was never really important like what happened in any one mall, but it was the trend you could see happen you know, over the course of a month um, or, or a season. And it was how many cars were in the parking lot. Like, were people in the mall? Were they in the food court? Were they in the stores? Was the product touched and turned over or was it pristine? You know, what was the markdown schedule? And um, I got kicked out of a lot of stores because I sat there with a notebook and tried right. to like tick the... Right. But I think what I learned was, it was, like to me it was interesting because it opened up this um, window into like the qualitative side of the business. So numbers were where I was comfortable, but the qualitative side was kind of what kept me intrigued. So you had a sense, just a sense that wasn't based on anecdotes and seeing and watching right. and stuff and like that. And I could kind of put these things together and then come right. back and say, you know what? I think that's, I think that company is going to yeah. whiff this month. Give me an example <laughs> you know? of one that you were like. Um, you know, I was actually covering Abercrombie and Fitch mm-hmm. the first time they had a negative comp. And mm-hmm. it was a huge, this had been a big momentum stock. They yep. had been having double digit comps. It was a Wall Street darling. Everyone was protect, you know, kind of out there with comps to say that it was going to continue increasing. And 
they had a negative comp. They went from big trends to negative. And right. we kind of saw that in the store. Like, right. you know, I, and that was, that was pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I, I covered stocks for a number of years. I think on the sell side, um, if you like it, one of the aspirations is to go on the buy side. You're over there opining on stocks at some point. You're like, I want to pull the trigger and make some money. So I went over to the buy side internally within Montgomery. Um, I, I headed up investing in, in, in consumer, which right. were, at that point was more broadly defined to retail products, services, and um, included hotels and restaurants. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think that that tenure was sort of the, a cycle played out. So how did you move into online? Because I guess at the time, Amazon was practically nothing. They were selling mostly yeah. books. You know what, though? It was causing a lot of problems. Because by the time I kind of got out of that game, like the investment thesis had really changed. It was, we've been overstored in this country. People, you know, at the same time, Amazon and eBay kind of snuck up out of nowhere. They're big, they're important. They're, 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 they have a chance to get big and important. Everyone's going to buy online. No one's ever going to go to that crappy mall again. Mm-hmm. And everybody better, like, figure out how to rationalize their cost structure and, you know, kind of change the margin structure. Right. And so I think, like, looking at it, I was like, this part of the investment cycle is much more financially driven. It's not about kind of what the consumer's responding to. That's not what's driving the investment thesis. And that was really, for me, like the first moment where I took a pause to say, what do I want to be when I grow up? Yeah. You know, and I think uh, the simple observation was one cycle played out and there would be another cycle. Right. And I thought, you know, what's happening with eBay and Amazon was interesting. My, um, my work had kind of led me to develop a thesis that there are a number of things that drive people's purchase decisions. And... Um, purchasing and discretionary items is as much about the journey right, of the brand. getting that item right, than it is about the particular item. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, Amazon and eBay have a very unique value proposition. It's meaningful, but it's not everything. It's not everything people want. Right. Over time, it's going to need to get more dynamic. And that could be an interesting evolution. And right. I wanted to invest in that. So you're essentially just saying the same thing that old line retailers did, is there was something about the brand, there was something about the feeling in the store. This, the online retailers had to be the same way. They had to have our yeah. experience. I, I mean, I'll recall when Crate and Barrel took a plate they bought for 10 cents in wherever they bought it from, Vietnam, and dressed it up, made it look good, and yeah. sold it for $8. Yeah, you know, I mean, okay. so much of retail really is, um, we, we have a, a couple of taglines that we always use when we're thinking about a, diff- a particular company or an area. One of them is is that, you know, there, there are limited things to compete on. Um, you can't, you, you increasingly cannot compete just on product. To have a product that the consumer is willing to exchange money for is table stakes. And that product needs to be good, it needs to be tied to the value, and it needs to mean something to that consumer. But at the, at the reality is, the cons- there's a lot of, you want a black suit, you have a lot of options for yeah. that. So it's hard to win on that. Price is a crappy business model in general. Like I just, you know, I think there are people who have made money on businesses that are low margin um, and just go for market share. We stay away from those at Forerunner. Um, and access is kind of flies in the face of, of a venture capital who's looking for big businesses. We're, we're about opening up access as wide as possible. So the thing to compete on is delivering a great experience. Great experience, you which know, is hard to do online. So talk about really how it fast forward today, because yeah. in the, the online experience is never, the, the whole marketing and, and merchandising really is what you're talking yeah about merchandising yep. which is yep. different from marketing yep. um how what how did you start looking at the companies you most recently had the most successes in warby parker bonobos uh hotel tonight um which is an experience which yeah. is a great Absolutely. experience mm-hmm. um how did you start to look at those and then obviously your big successes this year jet and um, um and dollar, dollar shape yeah I mean, I think all of them have some common characteristics. I would say that... That's a, you know, that's a lot of really good choices. And you weren't in some of the bad ones, which was interesting. I want to know why you weren't okay. in the bad ones. <laughs> uh, 
Um, you know, the, the, the years before I was, a, I was in a position where I felt comfortable raising money to start Forerunner, I did a number of different things to kind of like learn and keep the lights on, so to speak. But one of them, which wasn't paying me, was just to meet everybody that was interested in having a coffee shop chat about their business. Right. And I think over those years, you know, I, lear- I, I, I met a lot of entrepreneurs. I made some, I, I took some takeaways about those particular entrepreneurs and I thought about their businesses and why they might be positive or not and kind of followed those over time and I think that what I kind of learned through that and tracking their progress was that there was some common traits about some entrepreneurs not just from their ability to execute but their kind of in their connection to what they were doing Mm -hmm. and why they were doing what they were doing and so going back to the companies you mentioned all of those founders pitched me a customer experience all of them led with here's the guy Here's the girl. Here's what's wrong with the shopping experience. Give me, in this what, what did Warby Parker dudes do? So Warby Parker said that I've actually met the Warby Parker guys while they were in business school and it was a class project and it was one of my coffee chats at a Pete's on Sansom. They weren't raising money. And they said, you know, um, we all wear glasses and we've had the experience that it's like a really bad shopping experience. Like mm-hmm. you either go to your, you know, small little local around the corner optometrist and they have a limited choice and you pay a lot or you go to lens crafters and it's not you know, there's nothing sexy about that. It's no, functional. There's nothing sexy about nothing lens sexy crafters. about it. It's functional. Nothing. It's still expensive, you know. And then, like, there are some cool glasses out there, but, you know, it just, it's, it's a monopoly industry. There was that observation, too. And they thought, you know, be, we're going to challenge ourselves to, like, really, you know, take this uh, hybrid online-offline experience and come up with some cachet around glasses, um, come up with a direct approach where we can offer an affordable price and let people try on glasses. And I was like, how are you going to do it online and let people try on glasses? And they described this idea of like the home try on. And I thought, that's going to kill you. I mean, really, I, I was very skeptical of that. But for example, they, they kept going and iterating on their idea and running tests and learning. And so by the time they'd done that three times and come back to me, it was like, wow, they're really thinking about the experience. They're really thinking about the experience. And they're, they're business-minded, too. They're thinking about, like, i got to practically make money mm-hmm. out of this whole thing. And what did you think when they decided to do the stores? How many of you have been to a Warby Parker store, for example? Okay, it's a really lovely store. I go in there just to read the books, even though no one touches yeah. them that are arranged and by color. Like that. That's not really. That's I think good. they think no, I'm creepy. okay with that. Um, um, you know, I must think about stores in the context of most investments we're making, whether they're online or not. Right. So one of the other taglines we sort of believe in is fundamental is like the customer wants what the customer wants, when they want it, where they want it, and how they want it. Right. And if you want to build a big business and you want to be meaningful to a big, broad group of customers, you need to think about how you're going to meet them in the various places where they might expect to see you. And that's everything from how you're going to market to them or how you're going to sell to them. And um, I think sometimes that means that you should have a full retail store and have a traditional kind of way of retailing. Sometimes it means you should have a high level of service and do the guide shop model like Bonobos is doing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it means you should have a pop-up store and go to a new market and do that. But I think that um, there is still a lot of about the discretionary shopping journey um, where there's an opportunity to include the offline. And that includes how people pay for things too and how they they actually do the entire buying experience. They do, yeah. I mean, I think actually, like, almost across the board, we are seeing that customers that come into stores, so a handful of our companies that started online now have stores. Let's call it five, six, seven of them. Um, The customers that come into the stores, whether they started online and came into the store or came into the store and then came an online customer, 
are the best customers mm-hmm. because I think I think two things. One, I think that the, the the fact that they were willing to take the time, it's sort of self-selected in that. But I also think that they had a full experience, and the experience was what delighted them and started to build the loyalty to come back. So, talk about some of the ones. Uh, talk about Dollar Shave Club because that was a really interesting. That guy sort of jumped out of nowhere. Great commercial, pretty much a great commercial. Uh, great personality. Was that it, or what did you see there? That yeah. Was so actually, two days before I met Michael Dubin for the first time, right. somebody said in passing, a colleague, you know, hey, have you seen this Dollar Shave Club? And I said, no, I haven't. And they said, oh, you know, selling razors, a monthly subscription. I said, I don't know about that. <laughs> $6 product, you got to, like, have the customer service proposition, shipping, et cetera, to cover that. And, you know, Gillette's got a lot of money, and they spend a lot. Like, I got other fish to fry. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my take on the whole thing. Two days later, um, I was at a, at a work event, and I met Michael at a dinner. And um, after 10 minutes of talking to Michael, in the back of my mind, I was like, where do I drop off a check? He did not pitch me a razor company. He talked about the guy. He talked about the guy today and him, his, his experience shopping for products. Um, historically, I don't want to insult anybody, but I think a lot of men have like left that off to their spouse or their significant other. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, guys are taking control of their own shopping decisions. Um, I think they go, the, you know, he described an experience of them going into any number of drugstores, grocery stores, and kind of perusing the shelves and just being unable to relate to the products, the messaging they were getting, and feeling a little dumbfounded on what they were going to do. And he described a world where he could tap into, like, he could tap into convenience. He could tap into messaging that resonated. Um, and, and he could deliver a service. And that razors was a great way to go to market because razors was, a, he could build a conversation around razors that everyone understood. It was a product most people ne- needed. Most people have bought a razor before. And everybody knows that they're super expensive so, and a ripoff. So why, when you started building these things, you've sold a lot of them this year. Why is that happening? Because several sales and several selling for not so much money. And in fact, losing a lot of money. One Kings Lane, uh, Dot, uh, Dot and Bow. So, and like, what are the differences between yeah. those companies? What are the differences? Or why now? Is there why did you now anything? sell those? You obviously were part of this selling decision. Yeah. So, um, so what was the price for uh, the razors? So, it, Dollar Shave Club sold for a billion dollars. A billion dollars. Yeah, it's a nice round number. It was. A, it, yeah, it was a round number. Yeah. Okay. That we were dancing around for a good long time. Oh, really? So that's where we ended they up. go nine billion dollars of cash. Right. Um, you know, we, were, we never marketed Dollar Shave Club. And I think one of the, um, you know, we had a lot of conversation around the table about whether this was the right time to do it um, and, and how, if we felt like we were realizing the, the, the value that we thought the company was worth. I think that um, this, this true um, relationship formed between the two companies. Um, I think Unilever is, my experience so far with Unilever is that they're an incredible company, um, that they are self-aware about where their strengths are oh, so and they didn't where think the of market, like them, as a, yeah. you know, their management No, but they team. couldn't think of this. They couldn't have thought of this. Yeah, right. they were basically like, we see the retail ecosystem is shifting. We make great products. We know how to do that. We know how to market in various countries around the globe. We sell the vast majority of our sales happen through a third-party retailer. You can look at traffic numbers in any market and see that they're going down. That feels scary, and it should. And so, you know, how do we ensure that we have a distribution channel where 
the customer is, where we can control that relationship and have have a part of that. Right. Um, I don't think you know. I mean, I think I'm going to venture to say that the men's grooming products category was interesting to them, but there are a lot of good grooming products companies. I, I think what made Dollar Shave Club valuable was the platform that it provided that it had created around yeah. it. Yeah. So. But why sell on your part? Others, Amazon didn't sell. Others didn't sell. Was it like the jig is up or what a good price or? Um, I think that the management, I think that the team started to really get excited by the synergies that could exist between mm -hmm. the two organizations and their ability to really lean into the areas where they had unique strengths and leverage the areas where Unilever could help them. How do you look at the ones that haven't succeeded this year, that really have gone out, sort of flamed out, essentially? And what's happening in the commerce space? Because a lot of VCs are pulling away from it, or it feels like they're pulling away from investing. Yeah, do that's you true. Feel it's been a little bit in and out. You know, a couple right. of years ago, it was a lot easier to raise money. Now the list of people so that we go to is smaller. So why are people getting nervous because of these bad outcomes, or...? I think so, and I, I mean, I think that's fair. You know, if I'm an investor and I made an investment in a team that I thought was great, where I thought there was a valid thesis, and then it didn't play out, or it did play out and it still didn't work out, and I lost a bunch of money, like I'm going to move on to the next thing. Like I, but, I but do understand. But what's the premise that. around e-commerce? The, the, these e-commerce, these especially these specialized. I mean, there's lots of them that are really, they're sort of, they they get to a hundred million dollar level, and then something happens. Well, I mean, I, I do think it's probably a case-by-case -case basis, but if I was going to draw out some big themes, I think that um, some businesses were flawed in how they how and if they considered the customer purchase journey. Mm -hmm. Some of them were designed as unique or or novel business models mm -hmm. um, that were great. That's a great way of saying what? That... Um, you know, okay, let me ask this question. So, so some, let me just say this. So some people say to me like, oh, you know, you, you know you, you've invested in a lot of subscription companies. And I say, I've never invested in a subscription company. And they're like, come on, you're in Birchbox, you're in Dollar Shave Club. You're, I said, right. oh yeah, that's great. They, are, they have subscription model businesses and that makes, that is a big advantage for them. But I didn't invest in a subscription company. I invested in men's grooming product company with a vision for how they were gonna deliver a better experience. Mm -hmm. And the subscription part was part of the better experience, was the convenience of it. It was the club idea <laughs> and the mentality. Birchbox is an online beauty retailer. Um, if billion, six billion dollar department store beauty business has been built on education and sampling. Um, those founders were thinking about how do we take some of those strengths and build them into our model. So that was like in service of the sale. I haven't, you know, I don't think that people, there's a number of goods that are on subscriptions now that I don't think people want to naturally buy things in those categories on a monthly subscription. Mm -hmm. You know, that's more of a novelty business model than it is really honoring the customer and what makes her or his life better and experience better. So what happens in the commerce space now? You have Amazon, yep. which is like Mount Everest over here, and then you have all the little mountains. And then you have retailers that are big retailers that are also very worried. I, we had Walmart CEO on the stage at Code a couple of years ago, and he, I think he came because he wanted to see these strange creatures of Silicon Valley. But I think in a lot of ways, one of the things he said on stage that really struck me was some, someday soon, we're not going to have retail stores. We're going to have a 10,000 square foot store, not a 300,000 square foot store. And I thought that was striking coming from the CEO of Walmart, that he was thinking in these terms. Where do you see it going? Is everything, I, I'm thinking of my own experience, I don't buy anything in stores anymore, practically. Ever, and not even food now. It's really fascinating. It's 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 a real shift. Um, 
and very quickly. Maybe I go to Walmart, uh, Walgreens. I think I actually go into the drugstore. I do. Yeah. I like wandering around the drugstore, but um, <laughs> late at night. Well, I mean, part of um, this is a great it's question. Like part a of foreigners' nice. like reason for being in our investment thesis is yeah. that the entire retail ecosystem is under siege. Yeah. The customer's path to purchase has really evolved. Mm-hmm. Everybody's, you know, every industry is in a state of evolution. Sometimes there are step changes. I think the customer that has grown up and embraces digital and is comfortable discovering and, in, and, 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 and learning and making decisions and transacting online is very different. And their path to purchase is very different. And that is changing who, what everybody's role is. So what do you have to be, because I, again, I think about Amazon, it's literally, my kids don't, they literally, they, before they even think of something, it's been delivered by Amazon. Oh, we got it five minutes later, that kind of thing in this last mile and the, the, the quickness of it. Um, it's so convenient. Is it, is it over for retail? Do you think someone who covered retail I mean, I think Amazon is an amazing company. I got to hear Jeff Bezos speak last night and I, or last week, and I was texting somebody else in the audience saying, I, I like everything that's coming out of this guy's mouth. Uh-huh. Like, he's a genius, right? Mm-hmm. And Amazon is much more than a commerce company. They are into an every kind of company. sector, you know, right. and they're doing all kinds of business. Sure. So, you know, I think so that they are... But what happens to the rest of the online retailers and then the offline retailers? think we're ever going to be in a world where everybody is going to shop one way with one entity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there are, um, you know, particularly down this vein of experiences and what people are kind of, you know, how, what products they buy and they expect an experience around. Some of that becomes very personal to that company and that brand and Amazon can't deliver that. You know, could, could, you know, Apple has their stores, there's a certain experience they're delivering, that's an important part of, of, of their relationship with their customer. They could probably also sell on Amazon, they could probably make both of those work. I mean, we're always thinking about how can we have our own stores and have our own website and sell on Amazon. Right. Maybe it's not the right answer, maybe it is, but... So what does a modern store look like? You know, you have all these payments companies going in and trying to do different payments at every year. What is an actual modern store and how technological does it have to be? For a while, there were all these things that you walked in and the thing would buzz on your phone and it, would, it was useless. Yeah. It was nearly useless. I mean, I think people used to go to stores because they needed to buy something. They needed to transact. Yeah. Now you can transact in easier ways, oftentimes than going in a store online. So why does somebody go to a store? They go to a store because they want an experience. They want to talk to somebody about it. They want to see it. They want to touch it. They want to go with their friend because they had a lunch date and they wanted to walk down the street. So I think that the, the, the challenge and the opportunity for companies today is to really take a fresh look at like, why are we having a retail store? and What are we going to accomplish there? Because you can accomplish your sale online. So you better be focused on doing something else more magical in your store. Give me an example of one that you think is great. Um, this, this is a basic example, but it's the first one that came to mind, Bonobos. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the, the idea at Bonobos is, is that you go to the store, you have, you have the opportunity to engage with a salesperson, and you learn about your fit relative to how we're cutting our clothes, and you kind of build a customer profile. Maybe you try on a bunch of stuff and decide there's three or four things you like. You get it shipped through your account that you set up there. Maybe you don't buy anything that day, but you now have given the company some information about yourself and what your measurements and all that other stuff is so you can more easily buy online. I see. And so when you look around at the, the, the I'm going to ask you one last question. I, I know I, I'm sorry to ask the woman question, but I will because you're yep. one of the few, you, first of all, you're enormously successful, which is highly satisfying for me. You, um, but um, what, what do you imagine the retail, like, where people will buy? Is it, is it going to be just one payments, buying, 
who who besides Amazon has a leg up in this area among the big ones and maybe among the smaller ones? What do you see? When like you, the big incumbent, the big companies. Incumbent. Yeah, because um, Google's tried this forever and frugal. Tried to shop forever. Tried to tried to, to do shopping forever. To do some and shopping it's been forever. It's interesting because I mean I think of like Google and, and Facebook how Mary was just talking about it as like new approaches to playing a role as a retailer. So if you don't need to go to a store and have the store build context with all these other brands and you don't need to walk out of a store, like what is the role of a retailer? Like what all does a retailer do? And is it deliver an experience? Is it deliver um, a, a social aspect? And can that happen offline? I mean, offline and online. Um, and can, you know, Facebook be a retailer like Nordstrom can be a retailer. They have, you know. Can they? Possibly. Mm-hmm. Possibly. I what mean, do I do. I do? do think that, um, you know, you. It's interesting having been in the space for as long as I have. I would say that in the last couple of years, it started out like a few years ago. We'd get a call from one big retailer, and, and I'd kind of feel giddy. I'd be like, "Oh, this is a little investor in Silicon Valley in California, <laughs> like this big retailer is calling us." Now, over time, almost all of them have called. They're all sort of, you know, in some stage of aware, you know, denial or awareness around where the ecosystem is evolving right. and understanding that, you know, what it's not about having just a great website. There's much more nuance than that, and right. there. There's, um, you know, there are things that our organization are not set up to embrace. There are things that are happening and changing so fast that, like, if we don't have the talent on board in our team, we can't do. Can they do that? Can these big retailers? You know, I think, I think, for example, Unilever did a really smart thing. I think Unilever, you know, certainly had the cash. They could have started something like that on their own. But... No offense to them, but did, you know, did, did Michael Dubin want to go work there before Dollar Shave Club? Did, did his, you know, five top executives or the 240 people work there? No. Sure. They wanted to come and work at Dollar Shave Club, a fast-moving, nimble company, breaking rules, doing something different. At this stage in the business, they're like, you know what? Now we get to do what we're really good at and leverage what they are to be bigger and to be global faster. We're excited to be part of Unilever. And thanks for the billion dollars. And they just um, got a team. So um, last question, being a woman in investing, there are there's several but Mm -hmm. i only use the word several okay um and you know that yeah um how do you is there any advantage or is it why is that and what do you how do you look at that when you're thinking about when you i think there can be an advantage i think it's been an advantage for me i think it's part of kind of you know understanding like hopefully having some self-awareness about what your strengths or your weaknesses are and playing into them um, and some of them, you know, might have to do with with your gender orientation and how you perceive people or how you engage in relationships or what's interesting to you or, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the space that I'm in is interesting to me. So I'm, I'm more likely to remember everything I read on a Saturday afternoon about something that looked like a social, you know, a fun activity, but I could bring it back to work because it's interesting to me, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because I'm, you know, 80% of the women that make the purchase decisions. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that, that can be helpful. Um, I think standing out in the marketplace and looking different and standing for something unique is, is there, the reality is, is that there are, there's more money than there are great ideas and great teams that can be built. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Silicon Valley and and, and any other subsector of the financial industry ends up being competitive. Right. And hopefully you can differentiate by doing good work and having high integrity and et cetera. But you got to do that over time. And there there are other ways you can send cues to the market to be different, to be different. Yeah. Um, Last question. What do you what is the most far out thing you think is going to happen in retail? Printing at home. Oh my gosh! I've heard some of those things. You yes. know, I, I think well, there's actually a lot of exciting technologies. So that give me are one that about. you would like to happen. One that I'd like to happen. Um, 
gosh, I, you know what, even though I'm in the space of being dreamy and thinking big, I also like bring it back to practicality and some of the things that sound kind of fun, like somebody, you know, waking up and saying, hey, you know, I got an X and X meeting today and like, what should I wear? And what's the weather like? And they'll tell me like, well, don't wear that because you wore it two weeks ago to see that same person and I didn't have to enter all that information. Like that would be cool. I mean, it's so long before something like that happens. So mm -hmm. I don't think spend a, too much time thinking about it. But I think something that's like still futuristic, but that's close in is where all of the information that you share online, all of the things that become public about who you are actually benefit you with unique experiences coming back to you. Yeah. And, and wherever, it's astonishing it that hasn't happened. It's uh, astonishing it hasn't happened. I, it, um, it's happening in little bits, but it's happening slower than it, I would have expected. It is. It's interesting. I always think when I go into an Apple store, they should know that I spent $950,000 there. Right? Um, I mean, you're a whale. Instead, you should get a right. carpet. No, you know, but they something. should be like, yeah. oh, it's Kara. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, she's yeah. here. Instead, like some kid is like some teenagers is sexting over on the new iPad I want to look at. Yeah. And, and I can't get anyone's <laughs> attention. And the yeah. geniuses are off doing whatever they right. do. And, and I'm sitting there like, why aren't I like, why don't they pet me all day long like, yeah. walking in the store? Why aren't they recognizing That's that? That's exactly you know? right. And I mean, it's, it's maybe it, 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 you're even feel, having that experience offline. And I think it's even more frustrating to have that experience online. You're like, yeah. hey, you got my cookies. You saw where I came from, what I did last yes. time. Like, why am I getting the same homepage as, you know, my seven-year-old kid? Like, we clearly navigated the site differently. And right. we're working on that at a number of Your our seven-year-old kid is navigating a site? Let's see. My two-year-old so wipes and knows how to yeah. do um, So, very last question, then we'll get to questions from the audience. Give me one thing that you think you did wrong. I always ask this when I do my podcast to people, and people have the most interesting one answer. Thing? One on. thing? One thing. That's a, lot, a long list, yeah. One well, thing I can't think. Respect. I'm like Donald Trump. I can't think of one thing I've done wrong. Um, <laughs> what? No, I actually can't. Um, what, um, what, what's one thing that if you looked at an entrepreneur and say, this is something I did and what you learned from it? Oh, yeah. One of my most you know, valuable things was like the thing that I thought was going to end my career before it ever happened. Um, before I had a fund, I was doing deal by deal. Mm -hmm. And I was just, you know, I was really doing it the unglamorous way. And in the course of doing a few deals, I met this team that was, you know, really qualified, had tremendous experience. They'd worked at two reputable big companies. They'd worked, the team had worked together at both in and out of those companies. And they had a big idea. They were going to bring an entirely new production capacity to a whole new line of clothing to launch a whole different website experience and to have stores. And they had this kind of showroom model. And it was, it was a big idea. And that was exciting, and it was a new model in retail. And I got on board to invest. I had somebody who kind of sponsored me to make that investment. And in the first year, we had 99 people working at the company. Mm -hmm. We had six stores and a decent amount of sales, but a lot of infrastructure built. And then we got caught in 08, and we couldn't raise a penny. And we had, ta we had taken away the one thing that should be every startup's advantage, which is to be nimble. Right. And we could not be nimble. We could not right-size our organization or our infrastructure in any way to save ourselves. Even though we still had like $10 million in the bank, we still couldn't do it. And um, it was a huge, big blowout disaster. What was, what was the name of it? Now, N-A-U. N-A, I don't even know. That. It was a very cool brand. It was on like Fast Company's top 10 big ideas for the year or the decade. And yeah, CNN yeah. had covered it. And then the yeah. next day they're talking about this. And it was the first time a reporter ever called me was to talk about this big blowout. And I was yeah. like, ah, it's <laughs> over for me. Yeah. It's all over. But yeah. um, I, you know what? What an, what a, what an ex like a, yeah. a valuable lesson. Like 
I'll, I've, you know, I'll continue to make mistakes and hopefully learn yeah. from them, but that is one that I have like really held very close to me. Did you? You pivoted though, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Questions from the audience. Now pivoted. We still have the name. I, you're not allowed to use the word pivot on stage with me. Anyway, uh, questions right here. What do you think is going to happen to mom and pop retail with what's going on with Facebook and Amazon and so forth? You know, I think a lot of a lot of evolution has kind of already happened in the mindset of the consumer. You used to go to mom and pop retail because you really had to. They gave you access to products. The world has been different from that for a long time. People now and for the last handful of years, I think have been going to mom and pop retailers because they're honoring them, because they're in their neighborhood, because they go to their coffee shop and they walk by that store and they buy, you know, maybe less than they did before, maybe not, I don't know, but I think their role in the ecosystem of retailers has changed and evolved. And while they've been having, you know, while this has created um, some different competitive sets with with the rise of, of the online retailers, they've also started to get some tools in their business. There's a number of, of, of SaaS companies that are offering uh, ways for them to kind of be more efficient on some aspects of managing their business, which hopefully the, the ones that are really in it for their livelihood can take advantage of. So it's a, it's a shift too. Hi. Um, in all the talk of the importance of the customer experience, um, what is your point of view on um, sort of the social good aspect, like, like Warby Parker, what they did with buy one, give one, um, and, and also customer love. How important are those two aspects in the customer experience? They're really important, and I think they can be really powerful if they're really authentic. So one of the things is, you know, the customer today has access to so much information, and so there starts to become this expectation that you know who you're doing business with, something about them, what they stand for. I think, you know, doing good and recognizing that a company has a role in the community particularly to the millennial generation, does mean something. It's a feature, not a foundation. Like, it doesn't give you any leeway to skimp on product, service, price, all the other things, but it is something that you get credit for, like heart share, which can translate to part of the loyalty equation. Um, and, you know, the, the customer appreciation and, the, I mean, I don't know why every company doesn't think about a loyalty program or, or how to kind of let a customer know that they're important to them and show something back to them because that is one of the most impactful things that I've seen time and time and time again in a business. It was a Nordstrom thing. Nordstrom. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, yeah. Yeah, we take back a tire. They didn't ever take back a tire. But next, last, we have one more question right here or two right here. You had said that when we walk into a store, it's always with a, an intent to purchase. Who do you see among retailers today answers the question, uh, what should I buy? Because by the time I get to Google, it's already, I mean, I, can, I cannot ask Google, what do I need to buy? I, I go with an intent to search for something. Which retailer have you seen answers that effectively? Can I just ask you, where do you search for buying stuff now? It probably starts at Amazon today, Amazon. more so than that's that the only Google. place. But I still, search. there is a, a little bit of a split there. But who among the retailers do answer that question today? To, help, to it, as to what should I buy when someone's in their store? Right. Um, I think that the, the retailers that are organizing their store experiences and their staffing models to engage with customers, right? So if you have just an over-assorted store and you know so much merchandise that it's overwhelming and you can't hire enough people to kind of manage the people that are coming through your store, it's going to be very hard to engage and give them some insight. And like, yeah, some of the technology and some of the messaging and the pop-up can help, but it isn't at a, light, a level right now where it displaces a salesperson. Um, and so, you know, back to 
sorry to be boring, the Bonobos example, but the whole entire store process is designed so that you can have an interaction with the salesperson and that they can help you understand what you what you should be buying based on you know what they're learning about you in conversation and what they know about other like-minded customers. Um, and I think that the the new crop of retailers that is that are starting to scale and some of the ones that are in their infancy that we're invested with are are really you know part of focus on the customer journey are thinking about how they engage with that in the store model and helping answer that question of what is part of it. Uh, last question right here. Hi, sorry, quick question. So you've talked a lot about sorry. what the importance of the customer experience is, whether in store or online. How do you see payments pay, playing into that? part of that experience, whether right now or in the near-term future? So important. I mean, so important. Um, you know, you're, you're going to hear from the Stripe co-founder up, up here in a minute, and like so many of our companies are using them because they really contribute to making the checkout process magical and easy, and that is so important. If a customer is struggling to put information in and struggling to get through that checkout process, they're gone. I mean, the cust it is good to be a customer today. Like, you know, you, yeah. better, you, you better deliver on so many levels if you're a retailer. And, you know, get every somebody could spend 20 minutes navigating your site and building a cart, and then they find friction in the checkout, and they are gone. Yeah. And I've been that person several yeah. times. Like, you can't drop that ball. Yep, absolutely. I think that's important. L last very quick question. Do you invest in drones, VR, AI, or... Um, these are all I think all those things are interesting. We're yeah. starting to educate ourselves and think about them. In the context of our businesses, um, and particularly if they're like a B2B, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the process to adoption is so far out there that we're not active in the space right now. To the idea of drones or, or, or AI or you know, VR. So drones are closer. It's hard as a seed fund. We yeah. did a few, you know, we've, we've done two hardware investments and we've really struggled with those. Like they're, it, it, the, the, the path to kind of just bringing a product to launch is, is so challenging. And then all the other things that are a normal challenge, it's hard to do when you can't back it up with a considerable amount of money. Right. And so I think they tend to be unideal investments relative to our yeah. portfolio and goals. And one refrigerator falling on someone is going to be the end of it, right? This is true. Okay. This anyway, true. on that note, thank yeah, you, Kristen Green. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. And be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, in which Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Friday, I host Two Embarrassed Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to your podcasts.